Hello and welcome to episode three of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. This episode is going to be a bit of a detour from the first two episodes where I focused on Civil War leaders who were affiliated with major colleges. We will continue to do that in future episodes. In fact, in future episodes, we'll cover men like like James Henry Lane of Virginia Tech, Richard Owen of Purdue, and of course, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain of Bowdoin College. We'll also cover William T. Sherman, who we know spent a lot of time in SEC country and was the first president of an SEC university. Uh, Stonewall Jackson from VMI and Robert E. Lee, of course, of Washington and Lee College. The list goes on, and I plan to cover all of these men in future uh, episodes. However, I've always found Patrick Claiborne fascinating, and since this is my podcast, I want to cover him in this episode. The truth is, Patrick Claiborne was in the Civil War specifically because he was rejected for college in his home country of Ireland. He was a pharmacist and a lawyer and was self-taught like many men in the western states at the time, including uh, Abraham Lincoln. He was the most beloved of all the Confederate generals in the western theater of the Civil War. He was actually in a gunfight before the war. He served in the British Army and the Confederate Army. He's the only Civil War general that is, was in the war specifically because he could not speak Greek or Latin. Uh, he was a man's man, and I would say a real 19th century Braveheart. He escaped the Irish famine to immigrate to the U.S. by way of New Orleans. He was the only uh, Confederate general to have subdued William T. Sherman on the battlefield twice, once at Shiloh and once at Chattanooga. He submitted a proposal to emancipate the slaves in the Confederacy, which in the end probably cost him his life. Born on St. Patrick's Day, this native Irishman was nevertheless extremely loyal to his adopted country, saying, quote, if this Confederacy that is so dear to my heart is doomed to fail, I pray heaven may let me fall with it, while my face is toward the enemy and my arm battling for that which I know to be right, unquote. Uh, Sadly, Claiborne would have his wish. Side note, uh, about the Irish who participated in the Civil War, there were actually 200,000 Irish men and women involved in the American Civil War. Now, Patrick Claiborne, he went from private to major general in the Confederate Army, achieving this without having gone to West Point and without any political connections. Claiborne's strategic use of terrain and his ability to hold ground where others failed and his talent for foiling the movements of the enemy earned him fame and gained him the nickname Stonewall of the West uh, by by many uh, leaders in the Confederate uh, society. Federal troops were quoted as dreading to see the blue flag of Claiborne's division across the battlefield. Robert E. Lee referred to him as, quote, a meteor shining from a clouded sky, unquote. Born to greatness, an impassive figure when at ease, but in the fury of battle, he was a man possessed. Okay, let's talk about Shiloh. His first battle was Shiloh at Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee, on April the 6th, 1862. This was the one in which Claiborne and his brigade spearheaded the attack against the Union Army uh, around Pittsburgh Landing, facing the troops of General William T. Sherman. 
the first thing to happen to this new brigadier general was that he got thrown from his horse in attempting to traverse a swamp during the initial attack. And covered from head to foot in mud, he emerged to lead his untested green brigade in a surprise attack with prolonged fighting that pushed Sherman's green division back to within 400 yards of the Tennessee River. Hardy, his commander, praised Claiborne for conspicuous gallantry and, quote, persevering valor, unquote. Claiborne's star was shown to be rapidly on the rise. Now, at, at Shiloh, of course, on the second day, Grant was able to push the Confederate Army out of Pittsburgh Landing with really with superior reinforcement, reinforcements and supplies. And then the Union Army uh, was able to push the Confederates south uh, all the way past Corinth, and they took uh, Corinth as well. Now, his early life, Patrick Ronane Claiborne was born in Cork County, Ireland, the second son of Dr. Joseph Claiborne, a middle-class physician of Anglo-Irish ancestry. Now, often when you think of Irish immigrants to the U.S., you think of, of the poor Irish Catholics. But Clay, Claiborne was actually a British Protestant heritage and was middle-class. Patrick's mother died when he was 18 months old, and then his father died when he was 15 years old. He had apprenticed with his father and was expected to carry on the family profession of medicine, but, but when he tried to gain entry to Trinity College of Medicine, he was rejected because he didn't have any of the classical education that was required back then in Greek and Latin. He was too humiliated to return home, so he enlisted in the British Army in the 41st Regiment of Foot, expecting to be sent to India. Instead, the regiment was posted to Melangar for civil, civil duties in Ireland stemming from the crisis of the Great Famine. So for three and a half years, Claiborne was posted at barracks around famine-stricken Ireland. He served during the turbulent months of the 1848 Young Irish Rebellion and received a promotion to corporal. He returned home to find his family farm in arrears uh, for its rent, and his stepmother suggested that the four oldest children emigrate and leave Ireland. And that's exactly what Claiborne did. He bought his discharge and emigrated to the United States with his two brothers and sister. He was on the ship Bridgetown, bound for America, and they landed in New Orleans on Christmas Day of uh, 1848. After spending a short time in Ohio, they went all the way up to Ohio, uh, where his siblings settled, but he moved back down to Helena, Arkansas, where he was employed as a pharmacist for two doctors, doctors uh, Nash and Grant. He was readily accepted in the town's social order, and during this time, Claiborne became close friends with Thomas C. Hindman, who later became a Confederate general. Uh, but at the time, uh, he was running for office uh, in the Democratic um, election. And together, those two bought a uh, newspaper, the Dem Democratic Star, in December of 1855. Immediately following his five-year wait for naturalization, he passed the Arkansas bar exam in 1856 and like Lincoln, Claiborne uh, had been a member of the Whig Party until it disbanded. But he couldn't join the Know-Nothings because of their negative stance on immigration, so he became a Democrat and supported his law partner, Thomas Heinemann, uh, for his bid for the Senate against Know-Nothing candidate W.D. Rice. In 1856, Claiborne and Heinemann were both wounded by gunshots during a street fight 
in Helena with members of the Know Nothing Party following a debate. Claiborne was shot in the back. He turned around and shot one of, of the attackers, killing him. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, doctors Nash and Grant uh, nursed him back to health slowly uh, over the course of time. Now, Claiborne adopted his new country thoroughly. He joined many social clubs and affiliations, which brought him close to the citizenry of Helena. Claiborne never owned slaves, and he voiced opposition to the institution, yet he valued the right and desire of the section of the country to break away from the Union. Much of his philosophy was based on witnessing the Irish fight for independence, and he sort of equated the Southern cause to the Irish cause for independence. His acceptance endeared him to the Arkansans, who he would later command in battle. He was, a delegate, he was a delegate for the Democratic Convention in 1858. When the issue of secession reached a crisis, Claiborne sided with the southern states. Of course, he lived in Arkansas. His choice was out of affection for the southern people who, who had adopted him as one of their own. As the crisis mounted, Claiborne joined the local militia company called the Yell Rifles as a private. He soon was elected captain, and then he led the company in the seizure of the U.S. arsenal at Little Rock in, in January of 1861. When Arkansas left the Union, the Yale Rifles became part of the 1st Arkansas Infantry. Claiborne's regiment was assigned to the force under William Hardy, who was the former West Point Commandant and author of the Army, Army's training manual, uh, Hardy's Tactics. After a time training in northeast Arkansas and conducting brief operations, Hardy's force was ordered to cross the Mississippi River and join Albert Sidney Johnston's army of central Kentucky in fall of 1861. The 1st Arkansas was designated the 15th Arkansas and just, just in time for Shiloh. Uh, Claiborne was promoted to a brigadier general. Now, he was known for constant drill and training of his officers, officers and men. In fact, that was a real trademark of his. Okay, so what did he look like? Winston Groom, in his book Shiloh, 1862, described him in this way. 34-year-old Claiborne was six feet tall, slender, and ramrod straight, with striking blue eyes and a rust-colored mustache that tapered into a handsome Van Dyke. So now we'll talk about the battle for Richmond, Kentucky, and Perryville. Claiborne and his men were transported to Tennessee in preparation for Braxton Bragg's Heartland campaign. In that campaign, Claiborne commanded a provisional division, or a small corps, of about 8,000 men. He proved to be a very aggressive and intuitive leader who led his men in smashing the Union line and nearly capturing the entire Union force. Unfortunately, though, during this battle, he was wounded in the face when a mini-ball pierced his left cheek and smashed several teeth, exiting through his mouth. He recuperated for a period of time, and then he, was, he got well enough just in time to join Hardy and Bragg to participate in the Battle of Perryville. Now, at the Battle of Perryville, it was a, it was a loss for the Confederates, but Claiborne was lauded by superiors uh, and by Kirby Smith, who termed him, quote, one of the most zealous and intelligent officers of the Army. Even Braxton Bragg, who didn't like anybody, 
paid Claiborne high tribute, saying he was exceedingly gallant, yet, quote, sufficiently prudent. He is the admiration of his command as a soldier and a gentleman, unquote. Moving on to Stones River, Claiborne had just been promoted to a divisional command and was in the, uh, this battle. His, in this battle, his division advanced three miles as it, as it routed the Union right wing, just like in Shiloh, uh, under Jefferson C. Davis. That was the Union commander, believe it or not, Jefferson D. C. Davis, that he was driving back three miles to Nashville Pike. That was their final defensive line. Now, Phil Sheridan is credited for having saved the Union Army from, from annihilation that day, and Bragg failed to capitalize on this, on this very successful first day that uh, his troops had under, under uh, Claiborne. So just like Shiloh, uh, the Union Army had staying power and logistics in their favor, and Bragg's army retreated to Chattanooga with Cleburne covering the retreat as a rear guard. Later on, after the Battle of Chickamauga, which was a massive Confederate victory, the Federals escaped to Chattanooga and were besieged there for several desperate months by the Confederates. However, U.S. Grant finally arrived from Mississippi and the Battle of Chattanooga began. Chattanooga was a victory for the Union, a victory so big that the Federals drove the Confederates completely out of Tennessee thanks to the daring of George Thomas's troops and their all-out assault, uphill assault of the Missionary height, uh, Ridge Heights. During this time, Claiborne's division was at the north end of Missionary Ridge, opposing Sherman's attack on that position. From Winston Groom's book, uh, Shrouds of Glory, comes the following. Holding the north end of Missionary Ridge at Tunnel Hill was Pat Claiborne, the tough Irishman had anchored his division into the steep hillside without the least intention of being the nut that cracked. And when, at daybreak, Sherman hit him head on, he re recoiled as if snake bit. Sherman threw more and more of his divisions into the all-day fray, but, nothing but never gained even a toehold against Claiborne's stubborn men, he even, uh, who even heaved large rocks down on their blue-clad assailants. So after this battle, Claiborne and his men were charged with covering the uh, Confederate Army's retreat out of Tennessee. So his 4,000-man division held back 15,000 of Fighting Joe Hooker's Union troops at the Battle of Ringgold Gap. Claiborne received a special citation from Richmond for his victory over Hooker's army at Ringgold. Even Bragg gave him special notice for having saved the Confederate Army from destruction in their retreat from Chattanooga. Now, Patrick Claiborne had, uh, although a natural-born leader and a man's man, had always been shy with the ladies. But after the Battle of Chattanooga, General Hardy asked Claiborne to be best man at his wedding. He met Susan Tarleton at Hardy's wedding. She was the daughter of a rich cotton merchant, merchant from Mobile, Alabama. And after a short and sustained courtship during the winter months, Pat and Susan were engaged to be married. 
A fall wedding seems to have been planned, but sadly this was not to be, as we'll discuss in a few moments. Now by this time, Claiborne had become highly respected in the Richmond capital, especially after having saved the army from destruction at Chattanooga and Ringgold Gap. So Claiborne thought he would use his newfound celebrity to submit his proposal he'd been working on to emancipate the slaves and enlist them in the Confederate army. This wasn't a new idea, but it, and it sounds ridiculous coming, uh, or coming to us in a 21st century perspective, but it was something that had been kicked around for, the, for a while in, in the southern states. Nevertheless, at Dalton, Georgia, on May 2nd, 1864, Claiborne resolutely stood in front of a specially assembled meeting of the Corps and Division Commanders of the Army of Tennessee and read his proposal. Claiborne believed that if slaves in the South were offered military service in exchange for their freedom, the need for foreign support and manpower and the manpower issues that they had been experiencing would be resolved, as well as the slavery dilemma. This proposal was met with a polite silence during the meeting. Claiborne issued, in effect, an emancipation white paper of sorts, but it was not altruistic, just pragmatic. And this hurt his reputation because it was very, very poorly uh, uh, accepted by the Confederates, as you can imagine. And he was passed over for promotion to Corps Command uh, four different times because of this. So controversial was this proposal that Jefferson Davis had all the copies of the document destroyed. But interestingly, Robert E. Lee made a similar proposal, and eventually Lee's request was put into writing. After this, the Richmond Congress passed an act to enlist slaves in 1865 into the army, the Confederate Army, which, of course, was way too late to have any sort of effect on the war. Now, the fact is that President Abraham Lincoln had already issued the Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863 as the nation was in its third year of the Civil War. The document declared that all persons held as slaves in the Confederate States were, quote, then and thenceforward and forever free, unquote. Therefore, freedom of the slaves had already been granted, but it was going to be up to the Union Army under, under Generals Grant, Sherman, Thomas, Sheridan, Meade, and others to finally make it so, and they did. Okay, let's talk about the road to Nashville. We know the Atlanta campaign resulted in the loss of Atlanta by the Confederates. And just before this, John Bell Hood was placed at the head of the Army of Tennessee, specifically because he was aggressive, and that's what Jefferson Davis wanted. Hood's aggressiveness had always been reckless in the extreme, but now he had an army at his disposal, and he would take recklessness to unheard of levels. Hood now moved north to, towards Nashville with plans to destroy George Thomas's army of the Cumberland and then move, to take, move on to take Louisville. This would, in theory, cause immense consternation in the northern states and would get John Bell Hood a lot of attention. This, of course, was a pipe dream, and very little could come of it, but Hood had an army now, and he had to do something reckless with it, so that's what he did. Now we're going to talk about Franklin, which was Claiborne's last battle. But first, let's talk about the Spring Hill Incident. 
because this is one of the more fascinating events of the war, in my opinion. Now, Union General Schofield's Army of the Ohio was caught dead to rights. Schofield had allowed Hood's much larger Army of Tennessee to sneak around him between Columbia and Spring Hill, and now he was caught in a trap. Schofield had to get to Franklin and then to Nashville to the safety of Union lines, but now Hood's army was in the way and was set to destroy him. However, the Confederates were now in Tennessee whiskey country, and the Confederate generals were known to have been partaking. In fact, drunkenness had become commonplace on the part of the Confederate generals because they knew this giant maneuver that Hood was undertaking to Nashville was a huge waste. The, that night, the Confederate generals had gotten drunk, and well, according to Stephen Lee, and General Hood was passed out uh, from laudanum and other opiates due to the pain of past wounds that he had experienced. So somehow, even though Schofield's Army of, of Ohio was split uh, into two parts, either of which could have been easily ambushed uh, by any number of Hood's men that night, he was somehow allowed to, to get past the Army of Tennessee right under their noses with no one paying attention. Miraculously, Schofield escaped to Franklin, and when Hood found out about it the next day, he was embarrassed and highly enraged. So now the, the Battle of Franklin. Schofield made it to Franklin, but had to wait a while because his engineers uh, were working to build a bridge across the Harpeth River, so he was trapped in Franklin. Hood decided to pounce and teach his army a lesson for Schofield's escape. At this point, he decided to mount the largest and most ill-advised of frontal assaults of the entire war. With nearly 20,000 men making the assault, this was larger even than Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. Now, I'm not so sure how lucid Hood was at this point, uh, so I'm not sure if this was a, you know, a, a very carefully made decision or if this is just something that he dreamed up while he was under the influence of opiates. But, ne- but uh, nev- nevertheless, this uh, Franklin battle was going to happen, uh, and Claiborne and many of the other generals tried to talk Hood out of it, but he was so enraged that he could not be moved. As one might guess, this was a disaster for Hood's army. One of Claiborne's uh, officers named Guggen said, quote, General, not many of us will return to Arkansas, unquote. Claiborne said, quote, If we are to die, let's die like men, unquote. Damien Shields' book, The Irish in the American Civil War, has the following. At around, around 4 p.m. on the 30th of November, with bands playing and flags fluttering, almost 20,000 men of the Army of Tennessee swung forward at the attack on Franklin. They made an awesome sight. Among them was the talismanic figure of Patrick Claiborne, wearing a new uniform jacket and a white linen shirt. He was mounted on a borrowed horse, as his regular animal, Red Pepper, had been wounded the previous day at Spring Hill. Riding forward into action, it seemed that his promised he would determine he was determined to lead by example and personally take his men over the federal works. Although the prospects of success for advancing for the advancing rebels should have been slight, a grievous error made by Union General George Wagner handed them an opportunity. 
Wagner had left two of his brigades exposed out ahead of the main federal line, and they were far too small a force to stem the Confederate assault. And when the Army of Tennessee hit them, their position crumbled. As Wagner's men turned and ran for Franklin, Claiborne's soldiers sought to run after them and follow them to the main line works. Captain Sam Foster of Claiborne's division described how the Union men would, quote, fire a few shots and break and run, and as soon as they break to a run, our men break after them. They had nearly half a mile to uh, run to get back to their next line, so here we go right after them and yelling like fury and shooting at them at the same time. Killed some of them before they got their sec- to their second works, and those that were in the second line of works are not able to shoot at us because their own men are in front of us and between us and them, unquote. Although Claiborne's men were initially shielded by Wagner's fleeing troops, eventually the federal main line simply had to open fire. For those caught in it, be them Union or Confederate, the results were the same. By this time, Patrick Claiborne had crossed Wagner's advanced position and was heading for the main line when he was suddenly catapulted from his horse, which, had, which was killed under him. With the fire intensifying, one of Claiborne's couriers leapt from his own mount and offered it to the general. Just as Claiborne put his foot in the stirrup, a cannonball fired from near the cotton gin plowed into the animal, eviscerating it. His courier also went down, his side scuttled by a bullet. Claiborne, though, decided to press on. General Guggen last caught sight of him, plunging forward on foot, waving his cap in encouragement to his men before he disappeared into the smoke of battle. This was the last time he ever saw him. Many of Claiborne's men did reach the main line, where they became intermingled with those from other units as the deadly struggle for possession of the works reached a crescendo. Patrick Claiborne was no longer with them. So, Patrick Claiborne's marriage to Susan Tarleton was never to be. He was killed on November 30th, 1864. Accounts later said that he was found just inside the Union line. His body was carried back to an aid station along the Columbia Turnpike. Confederate records indicate he died of a shot to the abdomen. His men charged on without him and carried the Federal fortifications. However, Union forces counterattacked and retook the works and held off the Confederate attack after attack until the uh, Confederate army was spent. Hood finally called off the attack. William Hardy, Claiborne's former corps commander, had this to say when he learned of Claiborne's loss. Quote, Where his division defended, no odds broke its line. Where it attacked, no numbers resisted its onslaught save only once, and there is the grave of Patrick Claiborne, unquote. There's a marker at Franklin, Tennessee, at the place where Claiborne's body was found, and now, it rests in Hel- now his body rests in Helena, Arkansas. Tune in next time uh, for my next episode in which we'll discuss General George H. Thomas of the Union Army.